started. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your attributes, for your your characteristics. And pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of who you are and who we are in light of you. God, help us to uh, just draw to, to memory things that we've already learned about you and to focus on things that we will learn from your holy, perfect word. God, we thank you for it and for the fact that you have revealed it to us, you have preserved it for us, and for the many men and women who've gone before us and uh, been persecuted for for the sake of it and gone through the the pain and struggle of um, of preserving it and, and holding on to that for us. God, we thank you for it and uh, pray for the kids this morning that they would learn as, as their teachers pour into them. God, we love you and thank you. Amen. All right. So, there she is. Hi, Ada. <laughs> Second week in a row. <laughs> All right. We've been going through our uh, theology proper study. You can see up here that we're going through the, the incommunicable attributes of God. Who remembers the difference between communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes? What do we got, Rex? Incommunicable. That's the ones that he does not, God does not share with us compared to communicable. Which it does give us uh, allows some degree to that. Yeah, we're familiar with that term when it comes to diseases, right? Communicable diseases or ones that we can catch that are transmissible. And yeah, so so kind of them, right? Um, and God is so kind to set to share certain of His attributes with us, but there are certain of His attributes which He holds uh, for Himself, and they are not shareable with. Us and that is a good thing. All right. Um, is it down? I want to do. Let's see. All right. Back here. Systematic theology. It's the organized presentation of various interdependent doctrines. Remember that important word, interdependent. That you can't have one doctrine that is separated from another doctrine, but all these doctrines need to be understood as a whole. Um, they are interconnected. We need to remember that as we go throughout our study. A comprehensive definition of God is not possible due to our various limitations. However, we may list and define the perfections, the attributes of God, so far as he has revealed them to us and as far as our language is capable. Uh, Meats and I were talking the other day about, I quoted to you Deuteronomy 29.29, which says that the secret things belong to the Lord. So there are secret things we can't know. They are his and, and his alone. But the things that he has revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. And so we do take the things that God has revealed to us and we um, not only internalize them and, and study them, but we teach them and apply them to not only our lives, but the lives of others, realizing that there are limitations to what we can know, but God has revealed himself to us in, in certain ways. We need to take those ways and try to better better understand who he is. Hey, guys. I think Jerry's got a paper for you back there. All right. We talked about this this question last week, this very basic fundamental question of uh, who is God or, or what is God is the way that it's stated. How would you guys answer that question? What is God? Very basically. I'll throw it up there for you in a second if you're struggling, but 
What do you think? Alright, that's a good place to start. It's a creator. Creator of everyone and everything. Yeah. The only Okay, so that's taken us kind of to a different level. So we talk about how he's a creator of everyone, creator of everything. He's a sustainer. So that's talking about things that, that God does. And things that God does are super important. We get later on into uh, the incarnation and into uh, the, the death and resurrection and salvation, soteriology, and that is all super important. But we dig even deeper and we understand who God is. Um on a, an ontological level, and we can understand different aspects of God, and that's what what Jerry's talking about—that He is self-existent. Nobody created Him. He didn't come from anywhere. Um, what is the attribute we talked about last week that speaks to that? Say it louder. Yeah, a or a seity, and and we talk about that in in part of His transcendence. That he is outside and above and beyond all of his creation. He's not dependent upon his creation, um, but he is unique from his creation. And so the way that um, that question is answered in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is that God is spirit, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That statement says a lot. Again, we pointed out last week just how each one of those speaks to different attributes of God, that God is spirit. He is um, immaterial. He doesn't have a, a physical body like you and I have, and um, because of that, he isn't limited in time and space as we are, but he is, um, as that next word says, infinite, um, without limitation. He is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, Isaiah says, and unchangeable in his being. So because he is eternal, because he doesn't grow or or progress or learn or um, improve in any way. He's unchangeable, not only in who he is, but in his wisdom. Again, he doesn't learn. He doesn't progress in, in his knowledge as we do. He is completely set apart from his creation. Um, and in his power, his holiness, justice, he is now as he is for all of eternity and as he will be going forward for all of eternity. Now we get to our attributes of God. Um, again, these are incommunicable attributes we're talking about, ones that God alone possesses that he doesn't share with us. Attributes are those that God doesn't share. They're just his and his alone. Then, again, in contrast to the communicable ones, the ones which he shares with us, um, love and justice. Yeah, go ahead. So I was just wondering, can you share a couple examples or an example of incommunicable attributes? Um, yes. Let's go to this next slide and we will do exactly that. Um, so these first three, I think, is, as far as we got last week, the simplicity of God. Not that he isn't um, complex in the sense that we can understand him fully, but he is simple in the sense that he is one, that there is one God um, and he is not, not separated Huh? Not made of parts. Yeah, not separated in different parts. Not made up of, of pieces. Um, again, we're talking about the, the interdependence of these attributes. So it's not like God is 25% love and 25% justice and 25% wrath and 25% mercy. Um, but he is fully love and fully mercy and fully justice all at the same time. 
um, there is one God. And so that's what the simplicity of God speaks to. And that's an incommunicable attribute because that's something that we ourselves don't have. Um, his transcendence, we talk about how he is, again, above his creation. He is outside of his creation. He is distinct and unique from the things that he has made. And not bound by time or space. Yes. Yep. Time and space are things that are created by him, not that preceded him, but they flow out of him and his creation. His eternality, he is without beginning, without end. He is the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. Um, he is without beginning and without end. And then today we're going to be getting into his eminence, which is the, the counterpart to his transcendence. Yes, he is above, he is outside of his creation. He is unique and distinct from his creation outside of time and space. But then he transcends that time and space, and he he comes into that time and space. Um, so we'll get into that in a moment with his imminence. Um, it's a trip, huh? Yeah. Um, his immutability. Um, we'll get into that. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. Those omnis mean all. So he is all potent, means all powerful, all knowing, omniscient, all is all known. Science speaks of knowledge, right? And then omnipresent, he is everywhere at once. He is not bound by, by time and space, which again goes back to his, his spirituality, that God is spirit. Um, and so those are the incommunicable attributes. Communicable we'll get into next week or the week after, the ones that he shares with us in, in some respect. So before we get into imminence, any other thoughts or, or questions? Systematic theology or incommunicable attributes? Some of these things, we talk about them, but we can't understand them. Yeah. When we say God is uh, time and space, we don't understand how anything can exist without time and space. And we say, what well, was before? There was nothing before God. He just is. He was, he is, and always will be. And we understand that in our minds. We say it before. To me, something always comes before. Mm-hmm. But with God, it's not. There was nothing before. Yeah. Not even time. Yeah. Again, it's enough to give you a headache, right? <laughs> um, he he had no beginning. You go back a billion years, and he wasn't any older, any younger, any wiser, any more foolish. Dare I say? Um, he was the same. Yeah, if we could fully comprehend who he was, he'd just be a god of our own understanding, god of our own imagination, really. For eternity, when this life is over, we'll just be still trying to learn more about him and comprehend Yeah. Yeah, we'll never get to a point where we fully understand and comprehend who he is, which is a trick to even try to think about. All right, well, let's get into his eminence. The eminence of God um, is speaking of his volitional presence, that God is volitionally present. Nobody um, makes him be with us and among us. It's something that he does out of his own will, his own volition. All others are forcibly present. His imminence is a link between him 
and creation. What does the volition mean? Um, willfully. Okay. So that he isn't being forced upon by some outside force to be known by by man. Um, we'll get into deism here in a minute and talk about deism. Deism is a thought that God just created us and then left, um, which he he could have done in theory, but he didn't do because he wills to, to be involved with his creation. He doesn't just want to make something and then leave, but he wants to be intimately involved with it. Okay. God is noble. It is possible to have a relationship with God. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord. So, uh, Jim, as he spoke, we're never going to fully comprehend who God is. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So, trying to find that middle ground. Yes, he's noble in a sense, but not comprehensively. And I, I haven't thought through this thought all the way, but I think it's fair to say that you know, one thing that's different about God's presence is that it is completely volitional, but also no one could ever be as present as God either. Like there's something to wherever God is, he is he is present in a way that goes beyond how we could ever be present because of the omnis, that he knows all things and he can be in all, all places and he's all powerful. Mm-hmm. His presence is way more than any anything we could ever do. Yeah. It's much more uh, intense. Again, that ties in with the, the spiritual nature of, of who he is. All right. Well, let's look up some verses about the imminence of God. Let's not let me be the authority, but let's turn to the Bible. It is our ultimate authority. So, uh, who can look up that passage in Deuteronomy 10? I will. I love that. That is a good one. All right. Joshua 1 9. Another good one, often misused. <laughs> All right, uh, Jerry, you want Isaiah seven fourteen? <laughs> All these passages are good, right? <laughs> uh, Isaiah fifty five six. Who's got that? All right, Jim, and then Micah six eight. Yeah, all these are knockout passages. All right, Rex. All right, so as you read through these, be listening for how we how we see and how we understand the imminence of God in these passages. That God, though he is transcendent, though he is above and outside and beyond and, and better than all of his creation, he has stepped into his creation and, and takes part in his creation. So, Jeremy, you got Deuteronomy 10? Yeah. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. All right, how do we see God's imminence in that passage? He can be feared and loved. Yeah. His ways can be walked in. Yeah, he's made them known to us, right? We couldn't walk in his ways if he didn't make them known to us, if he didn't reveal them to us. We couldn't fear and love God if he didn't make himself known to us. Um, but he has, and he has revealed himself to us, and he has not only suggested that these things can be done, but he has commanded us to do these things, which really emphasizes the fact that he is imminent and he is noble. All right. Who's got that next passage? Any next passage? Yeah. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. 
for the Lord is God. The Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. All right. How do we see his eminence there? He's with us. When is he with us? Wherever we go. We have to remember, he's talking to Joshua here, right? This isn't a passage that's directly written to us, but we can take this principle that God is imminent, that God is omnipresent. We can understand that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and we can understand that can apply to us. And in the New Covenant, we only have more advantages from Joshua. Amen. In the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But it's like um, we are... Doing things that contradict where the spirit can be. That's a good question. That is, um, that's a testament to our flesh, right? And the fact that we are fallen in our flesh, and um, we will do simple things. In Romans 7, Paul says that the things that I want to do, I I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. So he has a struggle of this old nature and this new nature, his sinful flesh, and the the spirit indwelled new creation. And, and those things will continue to struggle. But the Spirit is is omnipresent. The Spirit is, is God, and He there's nowhere that that He cannot be. Is it Psalm one thirty nine something? Do you know the verses in one thirty nine? Fourteen verse sixteen. There we go. My boy. Huh. Um now I just need to get my computer to be razor sharp too. So one thirty nine, fourteen through sixteen says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and your book and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Notice that the name. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't getting that. Those, those are great verses. Those are just Not quite what I was getting at. <laughs> Still razor sharp. All right. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So Sheol's the, the grave. Sheol's speaking of, of hell. So the spirit is is everywhere present. There's nowhere that the spirit of God isn't present. From heaven to, to hell, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how can God be present even in hell? And we realize that hell is designed, it's created out of the wrath of God for the judgment of sin because he, he hates and he loathes sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. Revelation 21, 27, talking about heaven, says that nobody who is impure or unclean can ever enter it. It is distinct, it is holy and, and set apart for God. But he is still judging the sin and pouring out his wrath on those who, who fall short of his glory in hell. And so his presence is just as real and just as true in hell as it is in heaven. So there's there's nowhere, no situation where God isn't present, isn't there. Did you have something, a question before? No. All right. Um, Isaiah 7.14. I think that was Jerry? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear his son. And you shall call his name. She will call his name Emmanuel. 
All right. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. All right. That is the the ultimate manifestation of God's imminence, right? That God took on flesh, um, that the woman would bear a son. She would give birth to a son, call him Emmanuel, God with us. Um, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is the, the epitome of the imminence of God, that he stepped into his creation in the realest sense possible, that he took on flesh. He made himself lower than the angels so that he could identify with us, so he could relate with us. And like you were saying, what a trip. Um, that, that dichotomy of God's in, transcendence and his imminence. Um, that, yeah, it, it was required that, that he do that because nobody else was, was able to because we were all um, full of sin. Um, I don't know. All right. Uh, 55-6. 5, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. All right. He can be found. Call upon him while he is near. Um, again, I was speaking with somebody this last week talking about, um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know how far we're going to get today. We'll see. Um, talking about life after death and uh, repentance and how far repentance can go and uh, it's Hebrews 9.27 that says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And that is why we must seek him while he can be found, while we have that opportunity to know him. Because once we die, we're going to face a judgment. We're going to stand before him. We're going to be, um, we're going to have all of our, our works laid bare before him. So we must seek him while he can be found, which one tells us that he can be found, that he has made himself imminent. And then two, there's a, a sense of urgency to that, that we need to, um, get on that now because there is no no purgatory, no second chance. And then Micah 6 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Alright, He has shown us these things. We can do these things. We can walk humbly with our God. What a trip. We can walk with Him. We can fellowship with Him. We can have that um, unity with Him. All right. Now we're going to get into uh, these different philosophies, these different outlooks on life that people have that are related to his transcendence, to his imminence, um, to how relatable and knowable God is. Uh, these are different religions that promote different philosophies. Um, we have a, a little chart on there. You can see um, there's a little diagram. And so as we're going through these, be thinking of, of where they would land on that chart. So theism, that's where we would fall that we believe in one God, um, and more specifically, we believe in Yahweh, right? But theism as a whole speaks of and realizes his transcendence and his imminence, that he is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Whereas deism, as I was talking about, recognizes that yes, he is transcendent, yes, he is a creator, he is above, but he, in a deistic worldview, just created us and then left. He doesn't have any involvement, um, any interaction with his creation. That is a, a deistic worldview. A lot of our founding fathers were deists in in their philosophy and their understanding of who God was. Uh, panentheism um, says that everything is in God. Everything is a part of God. That 
Um, we are all somehow connected with God. A couple of weeks ago, we watched Avatar, and it seems like that has a panentheistic type worldview that they can kind of plug in and connect with God and be a part of God. And pantheism um, says that everything is God. So there is no distinction between God and his creature, but it would say this computer is God. Say, I am God, you are God, the table is God, the, everything is God. It's, um, it's kind of a, a different thought. But, it's more like the new age. Yeah, very new agey, very Eastern philosophy. Um, yeah, it's different. So the, the distinction, as you'll see uh, in our notes, uh, between panentheism and pantheism. Panentheism thinks that God is, is with us. God is noble. He is imminent because everything is in God, connected to God, a, a part of God, but not God necessarily, where pantheism says that everything is God. And so there's no distinction between God being above or unique or set apart or um, noble or intimate. It's kind of a weird philosophy, I guess. So on that chart, where could we place theism in that little in those crosshairs of imminence and transcendence and being distant and, and weak. Top right, up and to the right. Yeah, top right, so 100% transcendent, yet 100% imminent, right? There's, there's no play in between. And again, that's where we get our minds blown, right? That's a, a trip that he would do that. He would make himself imminent when he is transcendent. What about deism? What quadrant could we place deism in? Top left. So yes, they realize he's transcendent, but he's obscure and distant. He's not involved. He's not um, relatable at all. And then panentheism. Where would panentheism fall? That everything is in God. Everything is a part of God. Yeah, eminent that he is he is noble so much in the sense that it it espouses the fact that we could be in God, but um, it's a a weak God, right? Not a God that is set apart in any sense. It's a God that is relatable, but way too much so. And then that would leave um, that bottom left quadrant for pantheism, that he is neither distant, I mean, he is neither like set apart in a wholly unique way, um, nor is he really imminent and noble in any true sense. Yes? Where would the class place Mormonism? Shotgun type situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no, there's no spray at the top, is there? No, because there's no concept of transcendence. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? See, where do you put pantheism? I put it at the bottom of the page. It just kind of <laughs> <laughs> pantheism, that's a, a different philosophy, man. I don't know. Um, but yeah, bottom bottom left, I think, is where it would be. But if it's falling off your page, that's 
I'm not going to have any qualms with that. All right. Um, says I don't know who this quote's from yet, Mark but Luther, it's one of my favorite. Okay. Oh yeah, this is a little bit weird at some points, but no, yes. Awesome. Oh, it's awesome. Jeremy says. All right. <laughs> we deny that God is such an extended, long, broad, thick, high, low being. We rather contend that God is a supernatural, fathomable being who at one and the same time is in every little kernel of grain and also in and above and outside all creatures. See, I think I get caught up in the in the kernel of grain. I know. But then he clarifies that by saying that he is outside of all creatures. Nothing is so small. God is still smaller. Nothing so large. God is still larger. Nothing so short. God is still shorter. Nothing so long. God is still longer. Nothing so wide. God is still wider. Nothing so narrow. God is still narrower. In a word, God is an inexpressible being above and beyond everything that may be said or thought. So, it's cool. Yeah, the God is in the kernel of grain. That just caught me up. But all right, how does the transcendence and imminence of God affect our understanding of prayer? It makes it reasonable and practical. Okay. knows because he's imminent, he's able because he's transcendent. Able to do what? Whatever he chooses. According to Ephesians 3, able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask of him. Amen. Yeah, if God wasn't transcendent, there wouldn't be any point in, in praying to him. If he wasn't imminent, there wouldn't be any point in praying to him because he would just be so far off and aloof that he wouldn't be able to, to respond. He wouldn't care about what we have to say. So yeah, it has very real application to our everyday walk with him. All right, let's do some reflection on his imminence. How does God's transcendence make you feel emotionally? Does it have a positive or negative impact on your spiritual life? Eddie, you spoke to that not too long ago about his transcendence. You just said, man, that's amazing, right? It's it's a trip. If we don't have any sense of spiritual security, then it should be a fearful thing. Yeah. Crush us eternally. Yeah. Yeah, if God is limitless, then, yeah, that should cause us to tremble. And that's why people have such a problem with God's judgment. His, his I guess, minor judgments that we see in history, especially people complain about his treatment of the Canaanites, hmm. uh, or even people who broke the law. Yeah, if they had a proper understanding of his transcendence, and they would have no reason to open their mouths and, and talk back, right? Mm-hmm. When I'm talking with people out on the street in personal evangelism, I'll use the example of um, kicking a dog. It's not good to kick a dog, right? But that's not something that's going to get you in, in major trouble. I mean, it could. But if I kick my kid, that takes it up to a different level, right? If I kick a police officer, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. That's assault against a police officer. If I kick the president of the United States, 
man, I'm going to be <laughs> down on the ground in a heartbeat, right? I'm not even going to be able to get there to kick him because uh, different degrees of, of who they are. And we understand that God is 100% transcendent, that he is completely outside of his creation. He is, um, his position is much higher than the dog, the kid, the police officer, the president. He is God, and that will help put us, give us a better understanding of the fact that he is above and beyond, and to sin against him is a, a big deal. Melissa? I think if we know him and are in him, then his transcendence is really comforting, because if we don't believe in the sovereign God, then everything is up to us, and everything is chance, and everything is scary, like thinking of the virus and all of that going on, it's like, well, it's up to me. It's up to me, because there's no one else that it's up to. But to know that God is sovereign, just like completely, it's such a huge comfort. It takes away mm-hmm. uh, the fear and the control, uh, which is hard sometimes, because as humans we want to control and want to figure things out. But it's far better to have a God who is good and who's in control. Yeah. And that's coming from somebody who had their own, right? So not asserting that nothing's going to nothing bad's going to happen, but realizing that if it does, it was in God's will. Yeah, like I had to accept that God gave me the Rona. Yeah. And it's still good. Amen. All right. Is God unpicturable? Why or why not? Yeah, this is uh, related to the question of both, but um, yeah. transcendence experiences, like for us, you believe it's possible, like for us to have that type of experience? Not in the same sense that, that God does. God is um, transcendent; He is above. We can have, in in a different sense, a, a transcendent experience, something that is a, above other experiences, right? Um, when you get up in the morning, you stub your toe. That's not a transcendent experience, right? But maybe you go out and you have an amazing breakfast, an amazing day, and that can transcend the poor experience you had in the first place. But when we apply that transcendence to God, saying that he is above um, everything else, that's, that's a different use of that word. So um, where does miracles fall? Or like Paul having his transcendent experience with God, or Elijah having his with God, or Enoch, or whatever. Um, I mean, we can experience God to a degree, again, as we, we spoke, but um, there are, are limits to our ability to know God, and we can, and one day we will have a better understanding of God, that we will be glorified and we will see him as he is, but I don't know, maybe I'm not understanding the question. Would you consider, would you consider a miracle... A transcendent experience. Would you consider that? Yes. Yeah. But we can never transcend to the the level that God is at. So I think we're using the same word in in different ways. Well, everything about us is finite. Yes. So you can never have an infinite experience of the so we can have transcendent experiences, but God is transcendent in his nature, in his person, in his, his being, who he is ontologically, and we are finite in our being. Um, and so we can have experiences that are, are elevated above other experiences, but in our nature, in who we are, we are not transcendent. The miracle thing, talking about miracles, has to be defined uh, to a incredible degree because what one person thinks is a miracle, the other person that just realizes is 
time. Somebody I know, doctor said, you will never walk again, you'll never speak again. Well, after two years, just walking and talking. It's not a miracle, that's just rehab and working hard, you know. So she thinks it's a miracle, but you can't get it ahead. Just two years of, of hard, hard work, a miracle that's restored now. You can drive down the highway, you can see that sign that says, miracles still happen, and it has a picture of a baby. Yeah. That's definitely something that is amazing and something that is praiseworthy to realize that God created that. Um, but that's not a miracle. That's something that happens within nature. A miracle is something that happens supernaturally outside of nature. But, yeah, we're chasing rabbits. Go ahead. We can have, we can have transcendent experiences in the sense that we're especially touched by the transcendent God. I mean, and then that's, I think, a lot more mundane than we like to realize. I mean, but even being gathered together as God's people and singing praises and being moved by the Spirit um, yeah. through that, that's a transcendent experience because it's a work of God. Um, but the, but it's not a miracle. Um, and, and by definition, miracles are unique <laughs> and rare, right? So, yes. Uh, yeah. All right. Um. How can you correct somebody who has a low view of God? We didn't answer God's Oh, we didn't do that. So, Jeremy keeps bugging me. How how long are we gonna? How far are we going today? So, is God unpicturable? Why or why not? Yes. But what I was saying about it is the fact that no scripture tells us no one has ever seen God. So it's, it's hard to picture something you've never seen. Number one. Number two. Scripture tells us that we are not to. Uh, to make pictures or anything uh, of God because, I mean, how, how can you? You can't, mm-hmm. you know, picture something. And that's what's difficult in your mind because we see these things, like, like the movie, the series, The Chosen stuff. We see Jesus, who is God, you know, and maybe we have a, a tendency of, in our mind, as we're praying to God, and He is God, that we, even though we, we pray through Jesus to the Father, you know, to the Father, but we, we can't. In my mind, what I try to do, because of the, like the Hubble Space uh, <laughs> Telescope, when you see those pictures of, of all that it can encompass within its sight, and you visualize that and think God is greater than all of that, and He holds all of that within Him, how can you draw a picture of Him? You, know? you can draw a yeah. picture of the creation, but yeah, He is an unpicturable can't. Okay. I was going to say, but we also are told that we're made in his image, so it kind of gives us an idea, I think, in a way. And then, like, the angels are made in his, like, spiritual image. Uh, they're not made in his, We're the only ones who are made in his image. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that, that kind of goes back to that what we started off with, speaking of the difference of the incommunicable and communicable attributes. He does share certain of his attributes with us, and that's how we are able to say that we were made in his His image, made in his likeness, that he makes us with intellect and emotion and, and will and volition, um, this ability to, to think and to reason and to, to feel. Um, these are things that, that God has within him, and he has made us in that same respect, in that same regard. Um, but we are not... God, and we are distinct and separate from God, and so, yeah, we can we can look at each other, we can look at ourselves, and we can get a glimpse into who God is, but He's not fully able to be comprehended. Well, you speak of the hand of God, without hearing some people have ears. Yeah. You know, he has no hands, but we have to 
look at it that way because how else, you know, how else can we? So it's the hand of God did this, but it was not the hand as our hand. You know, it's it's what it, He is yep. that causes things to be. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to this this next question. How can we correct somebody with a low view of God? Generally. Yeah. With with gentleness, with respect, right? You don't want to um, in in some kind of hatred or some kind of mean spirited attitude say, "Well, you're stupid. God is like this, and and you are." Um, you're foolish and you're wrong in your understanding. I think it's important that we we let people know um, when they're wrong, but to do it lovingly and respectfully. Yes? I think if we're in the Word regularly, we see the character of God, and then that naturally will spill out and like just in our lives as we're living and dealing with things. So I think sometimes we might not even know if someone has a little view of God, but if we're talking about Him, we might be correcting someone without realizing it. Like just marveling at the goodness of God, marveling at who he is, and they're listening like I've never thought of that before. Yeah. Like we can be, just by proclaiming God, we can be correcting people. It doesn't have to be like a overt rebuke, mm-hmm. right? Just, yeah? Well, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm not going just going to say, for example, as you're, there's, on the religion area, speaks of God in a wrong manner because man can, man was once God. So I, in a loving way, he correct that with scripture showing that God, you know, God was not a man before him, you know, and then learned God of God. And so there's that whole view. And of course the book that we got out that talks about that, that Jeremy and Emily Whitworth both put out really explains that. Oh, well, and they also put a prophet in And in Islam, they recognize Jesus as a prophet. He's he's a good teacher. He's a prophet, but they don't say, "Well, yes, he's God." Um, they do deny the fact that he died on the cross, and and those are important things. And so it's important to come along and say, "Well, yes, you understand that Jesus is above us, and that he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher, but he was more than that." Let me lovingly and graciously explain to you with with charity, as you said, um, that this is what the Bible says. This is my authority and um, this is the word of God. And so let's walk through it together and let's see who God is according to it. All right. How is God capable of helping us with problems that we face in this life? Because he's transcendent. Because he's above. Right? All right. Um, let's see how far we can get in immutability. Oh, this is a quote from Ignatius first. There is no one superior to God or even like to him among all the beings that exist. So, last week, remember, we looked at Isaiah 44, 8, which, where God says, is there any other God? Is there any other rock? I know of none. He alone is, is set apart. There is nobody like him. All right, the immutability of God. This speaks to the fact that he doesn't change. God never changes in his being, in his perfections, his purposes, or his promises. He is always the same. He has always been the same. He will always be the same. He is unchangeable. Whereas we are mutable. Um, you think of that word mutable, you think of clay or, or Plato, something that is moldable and shapeable. Whereas God is not like that at all. 
He is unchangeable. Though the way he interacts with men changes, his essence does not. So God may interact with somebody in one way in a certain circumstance and a different way in another circumstance, and, and we may get into that here in a moment. Um, let's look up these passages. Um, Numbers 23.19 um, says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. So Numbers 23.19, it's a good one. Will somebody look up Psalm 102.25-27? All right. Uh, Trav, will you get Malachi 3.6, please? Britt, can you get James 1.17? And then Hebrews 13.8. Um, that takes and applies all these different teachings to Jesus. Um, and I'll just quote that one when we get to that point. So Psalm 102, you got that, Jeremy? Yep. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. All right, amen. So the psalmist there takes and um, says that the, the creation, the world, the earth, it's comparable to our clothing, which doesn't last, right? It's perishable but it says god isn't like that he is eternal he will never change he is always the same malachi 3 6 i the lord do not change therefore you O sons of jacob are not consumed all right and so there he takes and he applies his unchanging nature his immutability and he connects that with his covenant promise to the sons of jacob so because god doesn't change his promises to the nation of israel are are good you can take them to the bank um that's cool. And Britt, do you have James 117? Um every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from the God and comes down from the Father and there is no variation or shadow of turning. Alright, no variation, no shadow of turning, no shadow of change. Um, we can go out and we could see that the shadows right now are gonna be different from what they are five minutes from now. God isn't like that. He doesn't change. There's no shadow of change, no shadow of turning with him. Um, he is good and perfect. And then Hebrews 13.8 um, says of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's cool. So this same characteristic, the same attribute that God the Father possesses is ascribed to Jesus. That he also is unchanging. He also is immutable, unlike us. All right, let's look at this quote from J.I. Packer. It says, God exists forever and is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. That's cool. All right, let's try to answer these questions kind of quickly. Um, will somebody grab those passages for us? Genesis 6 and then Jonah 3. And these are some passages that atheists will often throw in, in our face and they'll say, well, what about this? You say that God doesn't change it. He's the same. Here are some biblical examples of how he does. Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Who's got that? Okay. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that 
he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. All right, so the Lord was grieved, and he was filled with pain. How could that happen if he doesn't change, right? That's the that's the question. That's how it's kind of thrown at us. Well, he created us, and then he he relented the fact that he had created mankind. King James says repented. Yes. Yep, i got a book all about that. <laughs> all right, and Jonah 3, 5, and 10. Who's got those? So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. All right, so that's after Jonah came and preached to them. And they, they repented, they changed their mind, and they turned to God. And then how does God respond in verse 10? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. All right, so again, God relented or repented. He, he changed his mind. He, he went back on what he had originally said or what he had originally thought and, and proclaimed to them openly. How does that happen if God is immutable, if God doesn't change? Yeah. But doesn't it appear, though, in both of those instances, that God is changing in reaction to man's free decisions, and God is bound? What causes him to change? Is he changing because of us? Are, are we kind of controlling God's will and God's reactions? No, God always hates sin. God always wants man to be restored to him. His, yeah, his understanding of sin is always the same. He always um, loves and embraces righteousness. He judges unrighteousness. Um, and his attitude towards those is always consistent. Um, so it's not God who's changing. And it's not that he's responding to us necessarily. I mean, he is omniscient, as we'll learn next week. Um, but... He isn't reacting to to mankind. All right, as he is immutable, God is also impassable. This means that his feelings are not reactionary to man. The impassibility of God. He's not um, being pulled along by by man on a leash, but he is independent in his actions that he has. Irenaeus says, For the Father of all is at a vast distance from those affections and passions which operate among man. So we we might look at ourselves and we might think that we are driven by our feelings, by our passions, and um, think, well, God is the same way in that he is responding to us and to our feelings and our passions. And uh, we have to understand, again, God is transcendent. God is different. And he is not like man. That's a tough one because God isn't emotionless. Yes. But he's not feeble as frail as we are. But in his declaration of the judgment of Nineveh, is implicit in all of his character and everything he said before is that he's, he is responding to man's actions according to his character. And then when, they, and when man changes his mind, when he repents, then God's implicit reaction to that is still the same as it always has been. Yeah. 
character. Amen. Let me read to you from Jeremiah 18. Um, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 11. It says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. And so, again, we see that his attitude towards sin is consistent. He, he hates sin. He will judge sin. Um, not always in the moment. Sometimes he is, he is gracious and he is um, slow to, to anger. And, but he will judge that sin. And so the fact that he is doing it at a, a different time, it doesn't change his, his nature. He is, as you said, consistent within his nature. Uh, that was Jeremiah 18, 7 through 11. All right, another issue that Rex brought up is the, the anthropomorphic language that the Bible speaks of God in. The Bible is full of anthropomorphisms that help us understand what is going on but are not literal. So um, taking and applying man-like um, characteristics or emotions to God um, so we can better understand. So when it speaks of God stretching out his mighty right hand, we know that God doesn't have a hand. Um, that's just language that is used to help us understand because we are finite in our understanding. Psalm 91, covering with his feathers, and under his wings you Yeah, God doesn't have feathers or wings, right? But it's language to help us better understand. Our initial understanding of passages like Genesis 6-6 is that we are being told that God's attitude towards people is at a point in time. Um, the language is not strong enough here or elsewhere in Scripture to suggest that God would go back and change it all if he could, um, which is evidenced by the fact that we're standing here, right? Obviously, if God didn't want us here, if he truly relented the fact that he created us, then we wouldn't be here having this conversation today. Although God is impassable, he doesn't respond to us. He still possesses emotions. He still shows love, patience, jealousy, and wrath in Scripture. And because God is unchanging and has emotions, it is natural and right for man to perceive sorrow from God as they transgress his commands. So God truly does um, not like our sin, right? It upsets him. And so we should be bothered by the fact that we upset him um, in his emotions, even though he um, isn't surprised by by the fact that we sin against him. God's attitude towards the Ninevites had not changed, but they had changed. And because they had changed from sin unto righteousness, God's intended dealings with them as sinners must of necessity change. While, of course, God's character had in no way changed with respect to these people, although his dealings with them changed. Yes? Mm-hmm. And then um, God was so 
Yeah, but he didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Many examples throughout the Bible of um, what we might think of as as contradictory, but it's not that God is changing in His nature. He's um, it's man who is changing, and God is responding consistent with His nature. You're okay, Joe. All right, real quickly, um, why does this matter? What's the big deal if God changes his mind? Um, The omni-attributes to follow next week are each clear examples of how God is both transcendent and imminent. These two overarching attributes converge at each one of these points. So if God did change, then he wouldn't be transcendent. Um, He wouldn't be God. And, And we wouldn't have any trust or reliability or or reason to have faith in him and his promises. Again, in that example, he connected his faithfulness and his unchanging nature with his ability to fulfill his promises to Jacob. And the same goes with us. If God is changing, then we have reason to fear. We have reason to worry that we aren't secure in Christ, that we don't have the ability to, to trust the promises of God. But he is unchanging. He is good. And, and we do. So. All right, we'll jump into the Omnis next week. Let's pray quickly and we'll take a break. Lord, we do thank you again for who you are. God, you are so transcendent, so outside of our understanding. Help us to, to understand that, that you are so far above us. Um, put us in a, a right relationship with you. God, we thank you for who you are. Pray that you would be glorified with um, our thoughts, attitudes, and actions for, for the rest of the day. Pray that you would be honored. Amen.